0: And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ."
1: Well, in last week's passage from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, we saw him addressing the disconnect that had developed between his ministry and the expectations and the values of this church that he had planted. So if you remember, it seems that the Corinthians had become enamored of what they thought of as a higher wisdom. They they thought that they had begun to move on from the things that Paul was teaching them that they had achieved greater insights, that they had better teachers who were coming to them with greater eloquence. So if you remember the story, Paul had been in Corinth for uh, several years, helping to start this church, then he'd moved on to Ephesus, and now reports and letters are coming to him describing that the church in many ways has become dissatisfied with, with his ministry among them, and that they're longing for more. And so instead of flashing his credentials, instead of arguing that, in fact, he really was just as wise and as eloquent as they want their teachers to be, last week we saw Paul press in exactly the opposite direction. He told them that his ministry was, in fact, folly, that it was exactly the opposite of what an outsider would consider wise. If you remember, we saw last week that the message of the cross, of Christ crucified for our sins, it's weak. And it's a foolish message to the world. Uh, Paul said that the Corinthians themselves, the people that God had saved through this message, they, they weren't particularly influential or respectable. Most of them were by, of, of no account by the world's standards. And, and even Paul himself, we saw last week, said that his ministry among them was characterized by, by fear and trembling and weakness. He was hardly the impressive and eloquent orator that would bring respect and prestige to the church. But surprisingly, we also saw last week that all of this was exactly as God intended it to be. That his plan was to save for himself a people through the sacrificial death of his son and to do it in a way that confounded the pride and the self-reliance that characterizes the world. God is intentionally saving insignificant people through a shocking message proclaimed by unlikely heralds. And so in the last verse of our passage for last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, we saw that all of this was designed to make sure that the Corinthians' faith didn't rest, he says, on human wisdom, but rather on the power of God. So all that's well and good, but there's one obvious question then that we're led to ask by everything that we considered last week, and that is, why would anyone ever embrace or believe the message of the cross? Remember last week we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says this, he says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. But the question is, why would anyone believe something that's foolish? Why would anyone embrace a foolish message preached by a weak person? How can someone overcome the prejudices and the blindness that naturally characterize us in order to ever come to faith in Christ? Well, that's exactly the question that's being answered for us in our passage for this morning. And so as we think about the verses that Eleanor just read for us, let's let's see two things. First, let's see what Paul tells us about the nature of his message. And then second, let's see what Paul tells us about the power of his message. So the nature of Paul's message and the power of Paul's message. So first, what does Paul say about the nature of his message He's just spent a lot of time showing us the uselessness of wisdom and proclaiming God's salvation to be foolishness. But here in verse six, he, he introduces it with that word, yet, or your translation might say, however. Right, Paul is gonna clear up a misconception here. He does not, in fact, reject all wisdom. There is a, a certain kind of wisdom that he embraces. Uh, he says there in verse six, we do impart wisdom Paul says I I do in fact have a message that is wise but it's just not wise as you're going to expect now we already know the content of this message of wisdom from last week's passage right in in chapter 1 verses 18 to 25 uh, we read that the cross of Christ is the wisdom of God it is God's way of doing things foolish to the philosophers of the world but but wise in God's own counsel So the cross is the content of this wisdom. But Paul moves on to tell us here four things about the nature of this message, the nature of this wisdom that he does impart. Uh, First, of these four things, he tells us that it's a message for the mature. There in verse 6, we read this. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So Paul says that that he does have a a message of wisdom for the mature. On the first read, it seems like Paul might be saying that his message is for super experienced Christians, really seasoned Christians, Christians who have gotten good at being Christians. But I think on further reflection, that can't be what he's saying. See, In this passage, Paul is not contrasting sort of new Christians with old Christians, or baby Christians with mature Christians. In this passage, he's contrasting believers and unbelievers, followers of Christ, with those who completely reject the message about him. Again, remember the content of God's wisdom is the the gospel of the cross. And so there's no sort of higher class doctrine here. All there is is the message of the cross. That's something that all Christians have embraced. Uh, There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't embrace this message of God's wisdom. And therefore, all Christians are included in that mature that Paul talks about there in verse 6, even if you've only very recently come to faith. Uh, The word translated there is mature. It it comes from the the Greek word uh, telos, uh, meaning um, end or goal or purpose. So the mature that Paul's talking about there in verse six are those in whom God's purpose has been achieved. Uh, They're they're those who uh, have have realized God's intended goal for their lives. They've embraced this message of wisdom. It's a a message of wisdom for the Christian. The second thing Paul tells us is that uh, this wisdom, this message is a mystery. You see that there in verse seven. He says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory." So the wisdom of God, this message of the cross, Paul says, is a secret. The the Greek word Paul uses there is the word for mystery, right, and that might sound kind of deep. Like you need some sort of special clue to understand it, right? That Paul's saying that the, the message of the cross is some sort of puzzle or, or game that's really difficult to solve. But, but Paul uses this word for secret in quite a bit in his letters, and it, it's simply meant to refer to something that you wouldn't be able to figure out on your own using common sense, right? This, this sense of a secret thing or a mystery is just something that you wouldn't know just by reason. So for example, Paul tells the Ephesians that God's plan to bring the Jews and the Gentiles together in one body, the church, he says, that's a mystery. Uh, There's no way you'd figure that out without someone telling you. And so here, Paul tells us that this wisdom of God, this message of the cross, it's a secret. It's a mystery. It's it's something that you wouldn't discern on your own. That's why he calls it a hidden wisdom, right? It, It was hidden in the past. Certainly the prophets hint at it. So Isaiah 53 gives us some sort of shadowy sense of what the coming of the Christ will be like. Psalm 22 and other passages in the Old Testament give us an outline. But but no one sort of alive in the Old Testament time just reading the the scriptures that they had, would come to the conclusion that God's son would take on human flesh and live a life of perfect obedience, dying on the cross as a substitute for our sins and be raised from the dead and, and ascend into heaven and return again to judge the world. That's simply something you wouldn't be able to figure out on your own. It's hidden. Friends, this is something really important for us to understand. The wisdom of God the gospel of the cross, it's, it's simply not something we can figure out. It's not simply a matter of a lack of information. Right? People don't reject the message simply because they lack knowledge of it. Uh, there is a bigger barrier. Uh, people are unable to crack this mystery on their own. In our natural condition, we are living in rebellion against God, and as such, our minds are darkened. All of our assumptions about the world are skewed by sin. And while we may be capable of incredible insights in the realms of mathematics and physics, while human beings can compose breathtaking uh, music and, and heart-rending poems, what, what no human being can do on their own, unaided, is perceived that Jesus hanging on a cross is actually God's plan to bring salvation to anyone who would come to him in humble faith. It's just, it's hidden. We're unable to see it. This is why the message of the cross doesn't receive a warm welcome. This is why we can proclaim the good news of, uh, to the people and ghost of our North Macedonia and Escort, South Africa and Sterling Park, Virginia and most But not all of the people want nothing to do with it because it's something that's hidden. It's a mystery. The third thing we see about Paul's message here is that God has decided to do things this way for our glory. It's a message of God's desire for our glory. Did you notice that there at the end of verse 7? He says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now that can't be right, right? If you've, if you've read the Bible and you've been to church, you know that it's not our glory, it's God's glory that matters, right? We, we think of glory as something reserved for God. We seek to glorify God with our lives, to leverage our resources and opportunities in such a way as to maximize the amount of glory brought to him. After all, God is the greatest, the most holy, the most glorious person in existence. But here, Paul says that God destined, that word means to to decide on, decree before the ages. He decreed that this secret wisdom would be the way that he saved the world for our glory. And here's what I think he's saying. See, human beings were created in the image of God to reflect His glory. Uh, We were created to be glorious. Uh, We were meant to be like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. We were meant to be like a a perfectly polished mirror that, that shows the image of God to the world. We were supposed to be glorious because our God is glorious and because we reflect something of His glory. Uh, because of our sinful rebellion against God, we've lost that privilege of reflecting His glory in the way that we were intended to. Now our lives are marred by sin and characterized by enmity towards God. Right, this is what Paul means in Romans 3.23 when he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hey, we're, we're just less than we were meant to be. I'm sure I don't even have to convince you that that's true. But God's plan, which Paul says he determined before time began, was to restore us to our place of glory through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ Himself is the Lord of glory. Do you see that there in verse 8? That's how Paul refers to him. He is the image of the invisible God. Uh, there we read in Colossians 1:15. And this glorious, perfect image of the invisible God died on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And as a result, those of us who put our faith in Christ now participate in his glory. Uh, Our old sort of marred images are being washed clean. We're like a mirror that's sort of covered in filth and grime, but is now being polished until it shines and sparkles. We are increasingly reflecting the glorious character and goodness of our God. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes to this same church. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Friends, this is the Christian life, here and now. This is the life to which Paul is calling the disorderly and disobedient church in Corinth transformation into ever-increasing conformity to the glorious image of the Lord Jesus. This is our business as a church until Jesus returns to the earth and we are all finally and completely glorified. Again, not glorified in the sense that we become the center of all things. Not glorified in the sense that we're praised and honored for our own intrinsic goodness, right? That's That's glory that's reserved for God alone. But rather, we become glorious because we will participate in God's glory. We will live in the presence of his glory. We will be made completely holy so that we always reflect nothing but his glory. Christian, what an amazing truth we see hidden there at the end of verse 7. Before the ages, God decreed all of this, that his son would take on flesh and die. He would be raised from the dead so that you and I could be restored to participation in his glory. I think once you hit a certain age in life, it is easy, maybe even without realizing it, to begin to live with a sense that the best part of your life is behind you, right? Maybe you even experience regrets that you didn't use your youth or your strength, your independence, that you didn't cherish time when your children were little, that you didn't, you didn't do everything you should have done with the time that you had, and so now it feels like all the good things, for the most part, are in the, the rearview mirror. But Christian, that's not what God has planned for you. In Christ, you will spend eternity in glory. Glory that will make the, the best days of your life pale in comparison. You'll finally live free from guilt and temptation and sin with no more weakness or shame, no more disappointing failure to live up to who you're supposed to be. Christian, God loves you so much that his plan from before time was to send his son to die so that you could know that glory for all eternity. The fourth thing Paul tells us about the nature of his message is that the rulers of the world can't comprehend it. You see that there in verse 8 where we read, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers of this age are simply the the, the political and cultural and religious leaders who put Jesus to death. Men like Annas and Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate, right? Paul's point here is similar to the one that he's making back in chapter one. Uh, The the powerful, the elite, they find the the message of the cross foolish. You, You can tell that that's the case because Paul points out here, they crucified the most glorious, wise, beautiful, godly human being who ever lived. You see, the best, the wisest, the most powerful The ones that you think would be the first to welcome God's salvation, they were the tip of the spear when it came to rebelling against him. The elites of the day thought that Jesus was a commoner worth sacrificing for their own personal gain. And so Paul says here, they they murdered the Lord of glory. Paul sums it up there in verse 9 with a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, The point here being that this great salvation that God has prepared is beyond our ability to understand it. Humanity can't see it or hear it or even begin to conceive of it. So last week we saw that the content of God's wisdom is the message of the cross of Christ. In verses 6 to 9, Paul tells us these four things about the nature of that message, that wisdom, that it's revealed to Christians who in this sense are mature and complete because, because we understand what God has shown us. That it's a mystery, something that can't be known by human reason alone. That it's aimed at our ultimate and eternal glory. And that it's utterly incomprehensible to the rulers of the world and to all those who see things in a purely natural way. And so let's move on and see then the, the power of Paul's message. Paul's message. Because we really still haven't answered the question, why is it that anyone ever actually believes all of this? Right, on its own, the message of the cross is only ever going to seem foolish and impotent and inert. But there is a power that comes with the message. There is a power that makes this message effective to our salvation. And this power, it turns out, is actually a person. It's a he, not an it. It's God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Look there in verse 10. Uh, We read, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So it is the work of God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that enables blinded, foolish, sin-sick people like you and me to see the beauty and the power of the message of the cross and thereby become mature, be those in whom God's purpose has, has been worked out. Right? In this passage, we see the Holy Spirit uh, doing three things to that end. There in verses 10 to 11, we see that he reveals. In verses 12 to 13, we see that he inspires. And in verses 14 to 16, we see that he enlightens. And so what I'd like to do is just look at those three things with our remaining time. So if you're a note taker, right, that's point two, the power of Paul's message, three subpoints. I'm not aware of any sub-sub points, so I think you're good to go ahead and put those in stone in your outline. Three things that we see about the Holy Spirit's activity. There in verses 10, 11, we see that the Spirit is active in revealing. So Paul says there in verse 10, these things... That is, according to verse 9, this, the unimaginable things that God has prepared for those who love him. These things, right, this glory that is to be ours through the sacrifice of Christ. These things, Paul says, are revealed to us by God, God the Father, through the activity of God, the Holy Spirit. And again, this is really important for us to, to acknowledge and, and understand Paul is saying here that this message of the cross is something that is revealed by God himself. So this is not Paul's best guess at how we can have eternal life. There there were no focus groups that came up with this message. There were no conferences where the best and brightest came together to try to figure things out, right? The gospel message of Christ crucified is not a conclusion that's ever arrived at through human experience or scientific inquiry. It's a message of salvation revealed by the Spirit of God. Now, you might ask, what qualifies the Holy Spirit to be an authority in these matters? Why would we listen to him rather than listen to some other expert? Well, there at the end of verse 10, Paul says this. He says, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the Holy Spirit is uniquely positioned to to know the depths, the otherwise inaccessible and hidden wisdom of God. And that is, of course, because he's the Spirit of God himself. So we read there in verse 11, for for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Paul's making a bit of an analogy here to help us understand Right, You can't read my mind, and I can't read yours. You don't know my deepest thoughts unless I say them to you out loud, and, and I don't know yours. Right? The, the, the pin for your bank card is safe in your brain, right? Unless you tell someone, no one knows what it is. Your, your spirit, your innermost being, knows your thoughts, knows your secrets, but they remain hidden unless you choose to reveal them. In the same way, Paul says here at the end of verse 11 that God's thoughts cannot be known by anyone except his own spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, searches all things, even, Paul says, the deep things of God. Right, that term search doesn't mean that he's, he's going around looking and gathering information that he doesn't already have. Right, when it says that he searches, it means that he, he has a profound and penetrating knowledge all the way to the, to the end. Right, what Paul's saying here is something like the old saying, it takes one to know one. Right, it takes God to really know God. And so Paul's message, weak and foolish as it seemed to the Corinthians, was not, nothing less than the revelation of God by the Holy Spirit. The second thing we see the Spirit of God doing is inspiring. So he reveals and he inspires. Look there in verses 12 to 13. It says, now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, I think the key to understanding what Paul is saying here is to to grasp what he means when he says, us, there in verse 10. And when he says, we, we, in verses 12 to 13. Uh, he says in verse 10, uh, God has, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. In verses 12 and 13, he uses we. We have received, the Spirit is from God. We impart this in words, right? So who's he talking about? Well, it's not, it's not abundantly clear just from the grammar. On the initial read, my first instinct is to think that Paul's talking about all Christians, right? We know from other parts of scripture, even what we read earlier from Romans chapter 8, that that all Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit is at work in us, interceding for us, transforming us, leading us. But I think the context here argues for understanding Paul's we and us to mean the apostles, the the ones who are bringing God's word uh, to God's people. Remember, we're We're looking, Paul's talking specifically about this mysterious and foreordained salvation by God through the cross. And that's something that's not revealed to us directly through the Holy Spirit. So certainly the Holy Spirit makes us able to appreciate and understand that message. But think about it. How did you come to know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? It was probably because someone told you someone who, who read it in God's word, or someone who themselves had been told by someone who read it in God's word. So in Romans chapter 10, Paul writes to the church, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So the, the way people become Christians is not necessarily or, or usually um, through the direct ministry of the Holy Spirit apart from the word of God. We have access to the revelation of God's spirit we come into contact with the deep things of God, the message of the cross, through the Bible. All right, I think if you step back, the picture is this. Paul's saying that the Spirit of God, not the spirit of the world, right? that's why this message is so far into the world around us, he says the Spirit of God has enabled Paul and the other apostles to understand the things that God has given us freely, as he says there in verse 12. And then he says in verse 13 that he and the other apostles impart or communicate these truths in words he says not words of human wisdom but words taught them by god's spirit that's the content of paul's teaching and it's come to us in the words that paul and the other apostles wrote to the churches so we have this revelation we have it by the inspiration of of the holy spirit we have it because god the holy spirit revealed these things to Paul and the other apostles, and they communicated them in words, words which we now have in the Bible. So friends, this is why we as Christians live our lives according to this book. It is not the opinion of men and women. It is not a collection of the best guesses of the wisest people. We understand that the Bible is the Spirit-inspired, Spirit-taught, truth of God. It is the truth taught by the one person who is uniquely qualified to to reveal the deep things of God to us, and that is God's Spirit himself. When we look for guidance, when we look for revelation, we ought to look to the Bible. We might be tempted to think that we need to sit around and wait for God to, to tell us what to do with our lives but Christian, he already has. Uh, We have access to everything that the Spirit of God thinks you and I need to know. I think the the problem is that we neglect to read it. We neglect to understand it. We neglect to believe it. We neglect to obey it. And so it's rendered somewhat uh, useless in our lives. So certainly, God the Holy Spirit is active in us directly. Anyone who's ever prayed for wisdom as a Christian has probably felt the Spirit's guidance. But that's certainly not the primary way we expect God to speak to us. And even when we do perceive the the guidance of the Spirit directly, we always want to temper it with what God's Word says. I can't tell you how many times in the last 16 years as a pastor, someone has come up to me and said something that they're really convinced that God's Holy Spirit is saying to them. And it's exactly the opposite of what God's Holy Spirit has already said in the Bible, right? And you can be like, I'm actually quite sure that that's not what the Holy Spirit's saying to you Uh, because he says the exact opposite right here, right? So we wanna take those impressions that we might have that may well be the the direct guidance of the Spirit and we wanna always submit them to God's word. This is why the Bible has to stand at the center of our church life together. It is only through the Spirit-inspired word of God that we know God that we we know what we're called to do and be and believe. This is why we spend so much of our time together, week after week, doing the very thing we're doing right now, trying to understand God's wisdom, trying to understand God's word. This is the only way we can have sure access to God's wisdom. Ultimately, you don't need my ideas. You don't need me standing up here each week sounding off on the things that grind my gears. You don't need my riff on current events or politics. What we need as a church, what your soul and my soul really needs, is for me or whoever's up here week in and week out to clearly explain and apply God's word to all the ways that we think and feel and do and believe. Because the Spirit of God has inspired these words for us. There at the end of verse 13, Paul says he's interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's a difficult statement to translate. If you're looking at the ESV, you probably have a footnote that offers a few different ways that that sort of statement can be uh, understood. It could be that Paul's saying we're interpreting spiritual truths in spiritual language. That's not particularly more helpful to me. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Okay, I know what that means, but I'm not sure how it exactly fits here. Uh, Literally what, what Paul says here is simply this. His words in a sort of wooden translation are just that we explain spiritual things with spiritual things. I think what he's saying here is that part of the Spirit's work of inspiration is giving the authors of Scripture the perfect words that match up to deep spiritual realities. Right, there, there, there's an exact correspondence between Paul's Spirit-inspired words on the pages of our Bible and the deep things of God. the the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think that the larger point, however the best way to translate that, is this. You can trust your Bible. You can know when you come to it to read it that the Spirit of God is speaking to you through these words. And the third and final thing we see the Spirit doing in this passage is enlightening. You see that there in verses 14 to 16 where we read this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So as we said at the outset, the big question sort of looming over this passage is why people embrace the message of the cross and others don't. Some people embrace it, many do not. Here in verse 14, I think we finally get our answer. The natural person, Paul says, so the person who's just simply born into the world and is trying their best to make sense of it, apart from the indwelling and illuminating presence of the Spirit of God, that natural person can, Paul says, never accept the things of the Spirit of God. Right, in this case, specifically, the message of the cross of Christ, right? It's, it's like in the old days, Mac and Windows, right? It's like iOS and Android, right? For those of you over 40, it's VHS and beta, right? They're running on different operating systems. If you take the spirit-inspired data of the gospel, this message of the cross, and you, you, you input it into a spirit-less mind, if you, if you put it into the heart of a natural person, it's not going to compute. There's going to be an error. It's nonsense. Paul says it's folly because the gospel is something that can only be spiritually understood. Without God's Spirit, it's simply impossible. I think you can understand why. The message of the cross calls calls us to give up our lives, to turn from our sin, to turn away from all the things that we used to put our hope in, and to follow after a crucified Messiah. And that's foolish to the natural person because it's a call to give up what we love more than anything else, right? If if I offered you a rock in exchange for a thousand dollars, you'd be like, that is foolish. But if you were able to discern that this rock that I'm offering you actually contains within it diamonds of inestimable value, Well, now the offer doesn't actually seem foolish anymore, does it? In the same way, the gospel calls us to give up our cherished self-rule, our self-reliance, our our self-exaltation. But unless the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to see that there is inestimable treasures to be found in the cross of Christ, you'll never embrace the gospel. Why would you? It's folly. Why would I give up everything I love for something that's of no value to me whatsoever? And this is why two people can hear the exact same message and have two completely different responses to it. The great preacher of the 19th century, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones would often tell a story uh, taken, I'm sorry, from the 20th century, uh, would often tell a story taken from the 18th century about a time that William Wilberforce convinced William Pitt the Younger, who was then the Prime Minister of England, to go with him to hear Richard Cecil preach. Cecil was one of the most famous and powerful preachers of the day. Wilberforce was himself a a committed and passionate Christian. Uh, William Pitt the younger was a polite and nominal Christian, a man with no real faith. So by all accounts, when they went that day, uh, Cecil preached a wonderful sermon And Wilberforce says that when it was over, he couldn't wait to get away from the crowd and talk to to Pitt, talk to his good friend, and to see what effect this message had had on him. It was a a powerful message of the gospel. And so when he finally got him alone, he said, wasn't that a magnificent message? And, And Pitt said to him, you know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man was talking about. Here's William Pitt the Younger. The, the natural man at the very height of his intellectual and political powers. But he couldn't make head nor tails of what was so evident to, to every Christian who was sitting in that church that day, including his friend Wilberforce. Christian, the same thing, the same principle is true in our world today. The same darkness blinds the minds of our friends and families and neighbors that we love so much, but who don't know Christ. And so we ought to pray fervently that the Holy Spirit would have mercy on the people around us and give them the ability to discern the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And friends, I'm aware that some of us have sat here week after week. And this message just simply does nothing for you. Maybe you're just in the habit of coming to church in order to have some religion in your life. Maybe your parents bring you every week. Maybe you only come to make some other member of your family happy, but, but you're still a natural person. You haven't experienced the Holy Spirit shining the light of this glorious truth into your heart. And so you're unable to embrace and love the message of the Lord Jesus. Well, Friend, if that's you, I, I don't have an argument capable of convincing you. I don't have any magic words that can impart faith into your soul. What I do know is that what you need most is for the Holy Spirit of God to have mercy on you, to make you spiritually alive instead of spiritually dead, to to take out your, your hard, unfeeling heart of stone and to give you in its place a heart of flesh, to open your eyes so that you can see that whatever it is that you're doing to try and earn God's love, however it is you think you're going to be right with him, The Holy Spirit needs to open your eyes so that you can see that the one thing that you need to do is to put your trust in the Lord Jesus in order to be saved. And friend, if you feel the Holy Spirit doing that work in your heart even now, don't turn your back on it. Put your faith in Christ today. And for those of us who are already followers of Christ, we've been made the spiritual person that Paul mentions there in verse 15. Not because we're so clever, because we figured something out, but because the Spirit of God has illuminated our hearts and made alive for us the message of the cross. Maybe you even remember the moment when that happened. Now, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ, there in verse 16. We have access to the mind, the thoughts, the values of Christ by his Spirit and by the word that he's inspired. Now, Lord willing, we're gonna pick up these verses more in next week's passage. But friends, as we leave this section of Paul's argument, can you, can you see just how precious, how essential the ministry of the Holy Spirit is? It might be easy for us to feel like we need to move beyond the sort of message of the cross. We might long for something more glamorous, something more attractive, something more cutting edge, something that, that wouldn't put us at odds with the world quite as much as this message does. But the great work of the Spirit is to keep bringing us back to this message, this expression of God's ultimate wisdom. The gospel represents the deep things of God, and so we never move past the message of the cross. Maturing as a believer is simply perceiving the cross ever more clearly. The work of the Spirit is is allowing us to value the cross of Christ as the most wonderful thing in the world. And so, friends, one of the ways that the Spirit works in us each week is by bringing us to the Lord's table in faith. Here, by the, by the gift of the Spirit, giving us eyes to see what we couldn't perceive before, we can remember and even celebrate a broken body and shed blood. Nothing important, nothing worthy or of note to the natural person, but to those who have the Spirit of God, these things represent the power and wisdom of God. And so let's pray, and let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we delight in the love that you have shown to us in sending your Son, in in declaring this salvation for us before the ages so that we might experience your glory for all eternity. Holy Spirit, we, we rejoice in you, we worship you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to do your good work. We plead with you, Spirit, that you would have mercy on those in our midst who are still uh, n- in their sort of natural state. We pray for those in our midst who, who don't have eyes to see the beauty of Christ, Who aren't able to perceive the wisdom and the power of the cross. Holy Spirit, even now, would you help? Would you enlighten? Would you give faith? Would you help us as we come now to the Lord's table to come in faith, to come delighting in the Lord Jesus? And would you uh, transform us and conform us ever more and more to his image as we come? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.